perfectly fine and he is able to deal with our baggage and we're about to get into like some more of that stuff or whatever but just know if you have issues with the church you're not by yourself and God is bigger than the issues with the church and he's perfecting his bride and that's what we as a church we we try to bring ourselves constantly like into that position to where we um, we're trying all the time to be humble to be open to let him sanctify us um, refine us, make us more and more pure, more and more like Him. We're, we're trying. We're not perfect, but that's that's where we try and be all the time. Um, and so, um, so what He's the things that He says in this in this kind of last the last few things. He addresses some of the the concerns because once He was gone, some of the guys jockeying for power kind of came in and they started to try to take His credibility away. They were saying, well, he did this, and he did this, and he was trying to collect this offering for persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, and they were saying, yeah, he's not really, I mean, he's collecting this offering, but he's just going to keep it for himself, and all this all this stuff. And so when, when Paul says, uh, we've wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of, of no one, a lot of people think, a lot of the scholars think that those were like specific phrases that had been kind of become, that that was like part of the campaign against him, almost like he's like quoting quoting them, you know, in their efforts against him and stuff. So he's just kind of like, hey, just so you know, we've had nothing but integrity. And it's interesting that he opens and he says, open open your hearts to us. Make room in your hearts for us. Okay, Kind of keep that in mind because that's going to be real important in just a few minutes. Um, so he's going through saying, look, we haven't done this, we haven't done this, we haven't done this. Verse 3 says, I say this, uh, I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Um, it's I, I love watching like his heart for them come through. It's almost like he's like he's kind of reading their mail a little bit, you know. Like he's like, we didn't do this, we didn't do this, we didn't do this, and and so there's not an opportunity for them to like take it the wrong way. He's like, hey, I'm not busting your chops, okay? I love I love you. Remember that. Like, don't even for a second think that I'm that I am. Uh, like fighting dirty or anything like that. He's like, look, I don't say this to condemn you. Uh, I don't say this to condemn you. Uh, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. He's like, look, um, we're we're in this with you. Like we're here for the long haul. We're not uh, we're not going to up and go anywhere. Like we are in this. And so whatever we've been through together it doesn't change how how I at Paul and Paul had kind of a little like posse of like ministry people with him um, and so when he says like we that's what he's talking about like his crew like look we love you so whatever's going on there like it's not it's not gonna change the way we feel about you uh, it reminded me of the the unchangeableness of God in that sense you know he's saying like, look that stuff doesn't matter it reminds me of our church covenant which we just prayed through it's like no matter what struggles and victories come our way, we're going to walk together. Like we're in this. We have made a commitment to each other, and we're going to live this out. Um, uh, and then he ends this section, verse 4, says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort 
and in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. In all of our affliction, overflowing with joy. No matter what drama has gone on there, what we've been through, it's all good. I still get pumped up when I think about you and that church and what God has done. Just a, I mean, what a, just a tremendous heart. I mean, this guy has been, he, by earthly standards, would have every reason to write him off. You know? Say, I, for a year and a half I was there, I poured so much into him. I mean, don't they know me? Don't they, whatever? He could have just dismissed them and said, look, if they want to follow these other guys, that's fine. But he didn't. And not because he was prideful and saying, like, I'm not going to give up on him. Because it was here. It was so deep within him. He just loved them. Like a, like a parent who, who loves their kids, and even when their kids are acting like complete maniacs, like, you still, you just love them. I mean, you, it breaks your heart that they're acting like maniacs, but there's still that love that's there for them. And then he just, he had that affection towards them. Um, and so then in verse 5, uh, this begins a new section. Now, if you go back to, uh, and you don't have to flip back to it, but uh, chapter 2, verse 14 up through chapter 7, verse 4, okay, were written as he was traveling. All right, so, so here's kind of what happened. There was, like I said, there was that exchange of, of there was some correspondence, some letters, some back and forths or whatever. First Corinthians is one of those uh, that we have um, where they're asking questions, he's answering questions and teaching them from afar. Um, and as things got progressively worse, uh, Paul was just like, look, that's, that's this, the reports I'm getting and everything are just terrible. I'm going to go in person. And so Paul leaves Ephesus, goes to Corinth, and he shows up, and something terrible happens. And we don't know what it was. Uh, but it, all, all that we know at this point is that he describes it as a painful visit. Um, so he shows up, something horrible goes down, and he just, like, rolls out. Like, I'm, I'm not supposed to stay here for this. Uh, and it must have been pretty bad for him to describe it as painful the way that he does. So he leaves, goes back, and he sits down and he writes uh, a letter to them that he calls a painful letter. It comes from his painful visit. Um, writes this letter, um, I guess addressing whatever he was going to address maybe when he went there. We don't really know because we don't have the letter. Um, writes this letter, gives it to Titus, and sends Titus as his representative to go to Corinth to deliver the letter, to handle the issues that were there, to explain the letter, all that kind of stuff, to speak on Paul's behalf, um, and to continue about with the offering for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. That was really important. Um, so Titus went to go do that, and uh, Paul and Titus were going to, they were going to meet up at like a, like a halfway-ish point between there um, for Paul to be able to hear from Titus, like how did they receive the letter, you know, what happened, how are they doing, all that kind of stuff. So Paul, um, he... Uh, some, somewhere along the timeline, he writes uh, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2 up to verse 13 of 2 Corinthians. Um, and when he gets to the rendezvous point, Titus isn't there. And so that brings up all this anxiety in him. Like it, it's funny because the, the guy who says, like, be anxious for nothing or whatever uh, is, like, super worked up at this point. So he kind of, like, gets real nervous that, because Titus isn't there and all that stuff. So he kind of waits a little while. Um, and then he decides, well, I'm just going to keep traveling and we'll meet on the road or something like that. I'll find him somehow. So from chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 4, is written as he's traveling. Okay. So uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, he gets to the point where he's like, I'm really worried because I haven't heard from Titus. 
And then it kind of jumps. He jumps into this like whole other like frame of mind. And so he's writing, and so all this point, the reason why it gets, gets kind of jumpy and seems a little bit like broken up is because he'll, it's like a journal almost. Like he'll write a little bit of the letter and he'll travel some more and he'll write a little bit more of the letter and whatever. So it's kind of progressive. So it kind of flip-flops around. Well, this point in this chapter is where it picks back up with where he left off in 2.13. Okay, so he hasn't, hasn't heard from Titus, so he's just been writing these other theological, like, amazing things up until this point. And now we pick back up with that storyline because he's met up with Titus. So, um, yeah, so look at verse 5. It says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Okay, so, um, so what he's saying is that uh, like Macedonia was where he, on his travels, even even him traveling there was full of drama. Like the dude cannot escape it ever, um, and so even that stuff was difficult there, and it was wearing just just completely wearing him out, um, taking its toll on him and everything. So he's just worn down. And then the next verse says, "But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort." with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. See, um, previously in the letter, he had talked about God being a God of comfort. And so here he is giving his own testimony to that being true, that in the times when we are uh, afflicted, and remember we talked about, this has been months, but we talked about, Affliction being like the pressure that you put on a, on a grape when you're making wine or on an olive when they're making olive oil, like when you feel life pressuring on you, that God, uh, at the, the right moment, sends comfort somehow. So here's Paul saying, like, look, I was at the end of my rope, and then up walks Titus. And I was so comforted by his presence. But what Paul did was Paul recognized the fact that that. Titus showing up, he's not like, oh, Titus, I'm so comforted by you. He recognized it as God is comforting me through Titus. I think that's like such a simple distinction, but I think it's a very important one. So look at the, look at the provision of, of God, not because of the person, but God is using the person to provide for me. I think as we, as we continue to try to learn how to be more generous with our lives, um, and we are also like the recipients of that generosity from other people's lives to recognize that all of those good gifts come from God. And it's something that when we first became a church and we started like actually having like money to be stewards of, it was super weird. Uh, and so for the first time, we were like, we can actually like help people. As a college ministry, we, we, we couldn't really do that. It sounds weird, but we were, we were kind of hands were tied. Now here we are as a church, and we are able to help people. And uh, from the beginning, we tried to, like, really instill, anytime we help somebody, like, there was finances or, you know, like, helping them pay bills or helping them get some groceries or helping them put gas in their car, I mean, whatever it is, say, look, um, this has nothing to do with the Ring Community Church. It has nothing to do with, with me or whoever. We happen to be, uh, we're, we're just like the conduit. This is grace that's flowing into your life from God. It has nothing to do with us. So God wanted you to have these groceries. God wanted you to have gas in that tank. God wanted you to help 
I get this prescription filled or whatever. I think that's a really important way for us to learn to live. I love that Paul, it's such a simple thing, but there it is right there for us. So Titus comes in, um, verse uh, 7, says, He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. What he's saying is the report that Titus brought was a good report. Here he has been worried about how, how the letter was going to be received and how, you know, how are they doing, how are their hearts and all that stuff. And finally he gets a report and says, hey, there's been a complete change of heart. And when, you know, in verse 2, when he said, make room in your hearts for us, basically Titus's report was they have made room in their hearts for us. What you've been praying, what you've been um, begging of them uh, has come true. It's so awesome when you um, when you get those kinds of, of answers, and so I was thinking about it. You know, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I can relate to that. Like I've I've had this, I've sent like you know those like emails that are kind of like, oh man, it's kind of a heavy email. I hope it helps. And, and you know, like you hit send, you get like nervous, and then like you hope they reply in like 30 seconds, good or bad. Like not knowing is just the worst part, and then they don't reply for like 30 days. You know, it's just terrible or whatever. Uh, I understand what it's like to have to to have to play like kind of that more negative role, and you get nervous how it's going to be received. And I know what it's like to be on the to get that like confirmation that it was received well. It's just it's just so great. And so so that's where he is. But but this is why like he's not he's not like oh good they're not mad at me. Now I'm filled with joy because you're not mad at me. And I think that's how that's how I would like receive it. Yes, nobody hates me. And I think he was glad that they weren't mad at him. That's part of it. But that's not what was driving it. Look at the next part. Um, it says, verse eight. We'll look at eight and nine together. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. He said, hey, look, uh, I do not regret sending that letter. I did regret it, because in the moment it was tough. and It was tough knowing that that was going to grieve you and be a difficult thing for you. But I don't regret sending it because of what it produced. There's such a such a important lesson for us as uh, as disciple makers um, in, in this. And if you are a Christian, like you are, that's a part of what we're called to is to make disciples of others, to to join in this incredible global process of um, of teaching and learning the ways of Jesus in one another's lives. That's what's going on all the time. So you're both a disciple and you're a disciple maker or discipler or whatever at the same time, all the time, uh, from here on out, okay? And so there's so, something so important that's in this. What he's saying is um, what he's saying, that letter needed to be written, and I don't regret it because I know, I understand the, in the big picture, you had to hear that. But... It was a painful thing to do because I knew that it was going to bring pain to you. 
So there's both, there's these two things happening. There's this big picture happening, and there's this like smaller picture happening. Big picture, this is this is for your good. Small picture, that was tough. It's like the infamous, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you from parent to child. But it's so, I mean, it's absolutely like a true, a true thing, a true place to be. Because a parent understands that discipline has to happen. And a parent is able to see long-term, this kid needs a whip. If I don't whip this kid, well, who, who cares about that? I'm with this kid. This kid needs discipline. This kid needs correction. Sometimes it's a spanking. You might not like spanking. That's fine. It needs correction. So maybe it's a timeout or maybe it's a, you know, it's definitely always a sit down or whatever. But, but this kid needs something that's going to be a painful experience for the child temporarily. It's going to be a shaping, like healthy thing for them long term. And what that means is that is, it is both a painful experience and a like a visionary ex- experience for the parent too and so when parents say believe me this hurts you more than it hurts me kids are not just like saying that it's legitimately like how they feel but parents have that ability to see the the big picture and the small picture at the same time and that's what paul's doing he's saying look that letter was painful but it was for your good so I, i'm gonna see the big picture and the small picture at the same time so i'll be grieved but that that grief is very short-lived and so for us as disciples and disciple makers, there are times when, like, that hammer has to drop. Like, we have to uh, sit down with people sometimes and look them in the eye and say, look, this is going on and this is not cool. And you know it. This is not who you are. Um, you're walking in darkness. You're walking in false ideas. You're whatever. And there are just times when we, we have to be the ones to do that. And when you do that, it is a painful experience, just like Paul had to do when he wrote that letter, just like a parent when they have to discipline, uh, root word being disciple, uh, their child. Sometimes we have to disciple each other by having those painful and difficult conversations. But that, if that is done in light of the big picture, then you go ahead and you do that. And you know that that's going to be difficult, but it's just going to be difficult for a moment. On the other side of that coin is that there are times when we are the recipients of the letter. We're the recipients of those difficult conversations. When someone sits us down and looks us in the eye and says, what in the world are you doing? And we have to understand that that is difficult for the person talking to us. But they have been prayerful about it and have been considering the big picture and they they are looking to act in a way, a way of God's goodness toward us. And so that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty applicable thing for you and for me. To be willing to have those conversations and to be humble in receiving those conversations, knowing that there's just something bigger going on, there's something more important going on. And that's what he's saying. He's like, I did regret it for a moment but I don't regret writing because it led to your repentance. And see, that's what he's saying. Like, that's why he's so filled with joy. It's not because they're, it's not because, oh, good, you're not mad at me. He's filled with joy because it led to their repentance. He's not happy as a people pleaser. He's happy as a fellow discipler, as a fellow believer. 
and knowing that these people are now synced up with the Lord. So look at the next, look, he kind of builds on it. Verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, and we're going to leave this up here for just a second. This, uh, this is tremendous for us, all right? So he differentiates between worldly grief uh, and, and godly grief. And you're, like, you may have a different translation that, that will talk about uh, sorrows. Um, what, I, what I think is probably like more of a like vernacular you know, kind of thing for us would be uh, conviction or guilt. So it says godly grief, he's talking about conviction. It says worldly grief, he's talking about guilt. Um, so, so guilt uh, leads to death. God, uh, godly grief or conviction leads to repentance, uh, produces repentance, leads to salvation without regret. So, okay, so let's, uh, let's play these two scenarios out. Let's say, um, let's say that last Sunday... God began to stir something in you uh, about uh, about holiness and how um, we're like there should be like a difference between uh, Christians and non-Christians, um, and you you just need to listen to last week's or whatever because uh, without getting into it too much or whatever. But there there should be a difference. It's not about legalism and rules and all this kind of stuff. It's just about like pursuing holiness. And in Corinth, they were just getting too close to things that they had been freed from, and Paul was correcting that. So let's say that um, that last week something got stirred in you. Let's say that it was about like materialism, okay? So let's say um, you you began to feel bad about uh, how materialistic you are. Let's say me. I'll use me. I began to feel bad about how materialistic I am, all right? Um, and, and so that's, I think that's more of a common feeling. It's like, is it guilt or is it is guilt or is it conviction? Is guilt or conviction? Let's just say that you feel bad about it and go from there, all right? So you begin to feel bad, and you're like, wow, like, I am such a materialist. Now, when I say materialism, I'm not talking about, like, you have stuff. Because you can, you can have stuff and not be a materialist. You can have very, very little stuff and be a materialist at the same time. So when I say materialism, I'm talking about, like, the, like what your heart's connection to your stuff. Is your identity found in it? Are you insecure because you don't have stuff? Are you comparing yourself? Or is it, are you ranking yourself socially based on, you know, stuff? Are you being a bad steward of the finances God has entrusted you with uh, in order to get more stuff? Um, are, are you hoarding stuff that keeps other people from having stuff? Are you feeding into injustice so you can have stuff that's uh, making other people uh, live in misery? You know, it's like all those kinds of things with materialism. So it's not about stuff. It's about, it's about the heart. So let's say that that you somehow felt bad about that. Like God reached into your life, he put his, his area on that finger of your heart, and he just began just to like, put some pressure on it. And you're like, okay, what do I do with that? Well, to figure out if it's, if it's worldly or godly, okay, if it's guilt or if it's conviction, what you do is you look, you look at what it's producing in you. And you look at where where you're turning. So if it's guilt, it's worldly. It's producing worldly solutions that ultimately ultimately return back to yourself. And if it's conviction, if it's godly, it's producing 
uh, it's making you turn toward God and it's producing things that are God-based and that are a part of what he's describing here. Okay? So, so let's, uh, let's go each route. Let's say that, let's say that, 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 that are you feeling bad is coming from, like it is worldly, is from like your flesh that is feeling bad. Let's go, let's go the other route first. That'll, that'll be good. Let's say, that, let's say that it's from God. Let's say God literally is the one that's put his finger on the area of life and put that pressure in. Let's say that that is, is where it is. But you're not sure if it's, if it's your flesh or your spirit. Well, you look at where you go first. Like, what's your, what's your reaction to that? Because this verse, this verse, um, godly grief produces a repentance. So if, if what you felt God stirring in your heart led to repentance, meaning that you turn completely from it, that you turn from old ways like we sang about, that you turn from sin to God, that's a pretty good indication of if it's from God or not. What was your reaction? So you feel bad about it, and you immediately turn to the Lord, and you turn from that, and you turn to Him. Well, that's how you know it's from him or not. How'd you react? If it was worldly, you would turn right into worldly stuff. So it would, you just turn right back to yourself, basically. You say, what do I, okay, what do I do about it? Well, I guess I need to, you know, I need to get rid of all my stuff, or downsize my closet, or this and this and this. So you become, you figure out your plan for stop being, stopping to be so materialistic. There's something that's about that plan, like when you turn back to yourself, there's something that always works its way in there. And it is uh, like all of your friends and the awareness of other people as to what you're doing. Because like when it's, when it's just about worldly grief and that guilt and all that kind of stuff, that oftentimes uh, a part of that is the fact that you realize like that other people think that too and so part of your solution is well, man I need to not only do I need to like get rid of all my stuff but I need to make sure people know I'm getting rid of my stuff because people might think like if I think I'm a, a materialist then they probably do too and so I need them to know that I'm not a materialist anymore so I'm going to get rid of my stuff and I'm going to make sure people know And it's probably not that calculated. You know, it's probably not that, you're probably not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to work this out. Next thing you know, you're finding a way to work it into conversation. Blah, 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 whatever. And so if, if that feeling bad produces in you something that makes you self-reliant or makes you somehow catering to your friends and their approval, if it ends up on a completely self-centered side of life, if that's where that goes, then that came from your flesh. That came from you just feeling bad because you have too much stuff. And that produces death. Because what happens is that puts you on a trajectory of just trying to like, basically protect your image again to redefine yourself, to make sure people don't think that. And ultimately, everything about worldly grief comes down to just the fact that we're pretty much addicted to the approval of other people. And so when, when you feel bad about being a materialist, your reaction is not, 
I have sinned in this area, your reaction is, do other people think that too? Because I don't want to be known as like the materialist guy. The other side of it, it's from the Lord, it's from the Spirit, produces this repentance, so we turn from that. Now sometimes when we turn from that, that involves some of those things on the other side I was just talking about. Like maybe a part of that repentance is downsizing some stuff. But it's not making sure everybody knows about it. It's not finding a way to like, like keep your image or whatever. It's about saying, against you and you alone have I sinned. It's recognizing like this area of my life is one where holiness has not been present. And you ask God, God, how can I be holy? How can I be separate from sin and devoted to your glory in this area of my life? And he begins to lead you in that. And so that repentance leads to salvation. And it's not salvation meaning like, and that's how you're saved. Like that's how you cross from death to life. That salvation in this sense right here is really more talking about, uh, it's really talking about peace. It's talking about the shalom that comes with, with like being at one with God, being in the center of God's will and, and the peace that comes with that. It says without regret. You never, ever regret repentance. Like true, honest repentance is never regretful. And so when that becomes the trajectory, it pushes you into repentance, and then there's peace, and you just never look back. I'm not saying you never struggle with it, but you just never second-guess that. And that's conviction that comes from the Spirit. And the beautiful part about that trajectory is that it is very short-lived emotionally. Like, you don't, you don't walk through, like, true conviction from the Spirit and drag that baggage around for 30 more years. But that's the temptation. Because sometimes, as we're, as we're wrestling, wrestling with our conviction, we end up kind of, kind of both of those things happening at one time. Like, there's worldly, we grieve in a worldly way, and we grieve in a, godly way, kind of at the same time, in this weird way. Where it kind of, it kind of lingers around a little bit. And God's going, no, 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 see, I've, we've dealt with this. Like, I put my finger on that area of your life, and I began to put some pressure, and you repented of that, and that there's now salvation. There's no regret. We don't look back. But yet somehow we're also like trying to like make it all about us at the same time. I think that there are so many times when God's like, no, no, we've dealt with this. Move on. Quit beating yourself up about it. Quit grieving in a worldly way. We, this is done. I've forgiven you of that. You know? And I know it seems like just like a semantics deal, but there's such a difference between saying, God, forgive me of this sin saying, God, I know that you have forgiven me of this sin. When you died on the cross, this was dealt with. Thank you for that forgiveness that is guaranteed and that is mine. When you move forward. So to go back to Corinth, what he's saying is, is that what happened in that church is so joyful because it produced something in them that put them back into the center of God's will. And that's what we want. 
you come out of last week and God begins to, to point to an area of your life, if he's the one that's pointing to it, then he's the one that you turn to. And if it's just your own guilt and your own whatever, then we have to find a way to take that guilt and, and, and really sift through that and figure out, God, is there something in this? Because that's, to me, how you ultimately put the tables. I mean, to put the text aside for just a second. If you aren't sure, like, I don't know if I'm being convicted or if I just feel guilty. Well, who, who cares? Bring it all under this verse. Who cares if it's your flesh or your spirit? Make it all spirit. Because you're all spirit, right? I mean, that's the overlapping circles. One's, like, big and huge, and one's, like, deflated, remember? I might not remember. It's okay. Right. But you are, I mean... You are new. You are different. And so even like even if like, you're just kind of feeling guilty about something, whatever it is, well, you have the, the power to bring that and make that submissive to the other side of the process. So who cares, honestly, if we're trying to figure out those two. I was just trying to see how you know the difference, kind of where they go, and our tendencies are to kind of make guilt all about us and all that kind of stuff, trying to like control our image of each other. But at the end of the day, if God is pointing something out in our lives, we have to be responsible and make it a part of the first part. So I think regardless of what it is, we look at this and we say, I'm going to, I'm going to grieve in a godly way, regardless of where it comes from. Because that produces what I want to be produced. Paul's saying, I'm so pumped up, not because you're not mad at me, but because this produced something so amazing in you. It brought you back into the center of God's will and the shalom that he created you for. That's what last Sunday is hopefully continuing to push us toward. That's what every Sunday is hopefully pushing us toward, that we're constantly always trying to get and get to that shalom point and stay in that shalom point. And when things get kind of weird, we bring it back together. And so that's why he's so excited. He's like, look, I've, I've prayed, I've wept, I've just toiled so much over this, all this drama that's going on in this church, and finally, there is some shalom there. And that's where, that's where he goes, uh, the rest of it. Um, verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what in indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Okay? And, he's, and he's just basically kind of just throwing out ways that he has seen them like do what they had to do. And I love that so much because I think that there are like, there's just so many times where um, I feel like we're, we're kind of wusses. You know? It's like, oh, I feel, you know, I know God wants me to do this, but what about this? And, you know, this happened to me and this and this. What about this? And all that. And I like, he's like, look. You took the bull by the horns, and it's been a long process, but it's, been, it's awesome, and I rejoice, and I celebrate with you, because you just got in there, and you got your hands dirty, and you did what you had to do. I think that's awesome. Let me just leave that there. Uh, verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Like, that's the whole point of this, is going to get you back um, into that reconciliation shalom with God's will. And, he's, and then he closes out. He says, and besides uh, our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was 
I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his, affliction, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. And you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. In verse 15, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. So when he just thinks about your obedience, his affection for you grows more and more and more. I think there's just this sense of uh, not finality, but just like um, maybe relief. Finally, all this time, all this prayer, all this just struggle, and I mean the ulcers and the I mean, everything he's been through, probably. Uh, you just find, like, oh, look at what God has done. It's interesting to me that, go, and this won't be on the screen, but I was just thinking, man, it's so random that he would, like, write up to, you know, up to 2.13 and then go on a whole different track and then pick up here where he left off. But verse 2.14, to me, is, like, just a perfect because this shows where his heart was the whole time but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life but who is sufficient for these things for we're not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We can't lose sight of the other parts of the letter. He's saying, look, look at what God has done in your lives. Look at how he brought you through all this just whatever and all this sin and all this whatever, and he brought you out of that. He led you out of it. He led you in triumphal procession. We're at the end of the triumphal procession. Like it's, maybe it's not over, but look, look, at, look at what he has done. He's bragging all over your lives. Look at what he has done among you. I couldn't help but think about our, our church and not like, oh, look at our church. But, I mean, look at, look at our church sometimes, you know. A week ago, I read this list of all the stuff we've been through. I think it's just one of those things where we have to keep in mind that, look, God is all about us. And not in the sense that, like, oh, we're the apple of his eye and all that kind of stuff. Like, he is, like, 100% in this with us. He's 100% in your life for you, working things together for your good, for his glory. He is in your family. He is in your community group. He is in your workplace. He's in all these things. He's absolutely involved in all this stuff. And so we've been walking slowly through this drama in this church and just so not this church, but this Corinthian church, and he's brought them through this. And I think the whole time, the whole point of it is like, look, there's shalom. There should be so much happiness and joy and celebration because there is peace. And I think for us, regardless of where we are as individuals or whatever, like there is peace here. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So I don't know, again, I always say this, like, I don't know where this fits into your life. I, I don't really know. 
Maybe it's about the tough conversations. Maybe it's about like conviction and how to deal with that and how that goes and all that kind of stuff. Maybe tonight has made no sense at all. But I think for us to see the overarching storyline of this church has been through has been through all this stuff, and finally it's like, look what God has done. It's got to bring so much hope into where we are. That God can take an incredibly, incredibly screwed up situation and make it one where Paul is just about to explode. They say in the Greek, I, mean, I don't know Greek, they say in the Greek, like he's, his emotion is just like just spilling out about this. So it almost like makes no sense in Greek because he's just so like stumbling through his words. And I hope that invokes in us something. I hope it brings hope. I hope it brings a, a, a big picture reminder that wherever we are, that there is an end and it is full of triumph for the glory of God. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray again. Lord, I pray that you will uh, you'll use this point in the story to encourage us wherever we are. And maybe we're more like in the, in the place where, where we need that correction. Maybe we need that sit down. Maybe we need to have that sit down with someone else. Maybe we're dealing with, uh, with conviction right now that you've brought into us. Maybe, maybe you're pressing on some areas of life to bring about refinement or whatever. Maybe there's just drama in general in our lives. I pray that, God, that this text tonight will kind of play the role that, that Titus played in the story. That just seeing, um, seeing a, that good report come after all that drama would be comforting to us. Just like Titus walking up comforted Paul. It says just his presence alone was comforting. But then the message that he brought was even more comforting. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to bring these things into life. Just recognizing your involvement in things. That you always finish what you start. That you see things through. That you... you don't give up on your promises and your purposes. That you maintain your holiness. That you are faithful to the end. I pray that this would evoke some things in us. And as we sing, as we wrap up tonight, um, just that, uh, that something would be ignited, that you would make something come alive. Because we're all at different points in life, but in another way, we're all in the same exact place. I pray that we would just be people of faith and trust. Thank you for displaying that in this church in Corinth so long ago. I pray that we would learn from them. And all of our thanks will go to you for leading us in triumphant procession. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.